Hello and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. My name is Dr. Kirsten Mills. I'm Director of the Master of Research in the Faculty of Arts here at Macquarie and a Scholar of Gothic Literature. And today I'm your host for this special episode celebrating the 175th anniversary of that literary classic Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And with me today to talk about this widely beloved novel, I'm joined by someone very special who is currently researching Jane Eyre, and that is Rachel Baldacchino. Uh, who is a current Master of Research candidate in the discipline of literature. Thank you for joining us, Rachel. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. <laughs> Lovely. Um, so the 16th of October 2022 marks the 175th anniversary of Jane Eyre, which has of course become one of the most widely known read and reread pieces of literature around the world. And it's been widely adapted into other forms like film and television. It, of course, tells the story of Jane Eyre, a young orphan girl abused by her adopted family, sent to an even more abusive boarding school, and who eventually emerges as a governess, sent to work at the mysterious Thornfield Hall in Yorkshire, England. The rest of the story, a protracted and not uncomplicated story of falling in love with the master of Thornfield, Edward Rochester, is probably only overshadowed by the revelation that Rochester has secretly been keeping his mad wife Bertha locked in the attic, as you do. <laughs> this wild story is beloved now, but of course when it was first published in the autumn of 1847 as the cooling weather crept towards Halloween and winter, nobody knew its author, and it was actually published under the pseudonym Curra Bell. So what is it about this story that makes it so memorable, so popular, and so enduring even 175 years later? Rachel, what does your research tell you about this question? Uh, well, basically, my research combines the fields of narrative empathy and Gothic studies. And narrative empathy is about looking at techniques of, I'm not going like, to name specific ones, but techniques that specifically induce empathy and reflection in readers. And essentially what my research says is that Jane Eyre and her other book, Follette, really encourage readers to kind of dive deep into the psychological realism of Jane. And I think it's because of the struggle that she has with her mental health and struggle between keeping her emotions, you know, on top of herself. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but... Um, yeah. I think that's why we relate to her and want her to find love and happiness is because we really see, especially in the novel, that first person narration of her struggling. Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is something that I think was quite special about the novel at the time. This is, you know, it's, it's a Gothic novel. A lot of people love the really spooky elements in it, but it's doing Gothic quite differently from the kind of novels that came before, um, you know, where we have more of traditional ghosts and clanking chains and skeletons in castles. And now at this point in the 19th century, we start entering this more psychological space where mm. we're really exploring the mind and the emotions and also ideas of madness and things, you know, can we trust our perceptions? Mm. And these kinds of things become a bit um, more terrifying, I think, than the idea of, you know, a skeleton mm. buried somewhere. Although of course they play their part still as well. Um, so, so, so you think this, this, focus on the psychological, this kind of new thing, relatively new at the time in terms of uh, what the Gothic was doing, that's still part of what draws us to the novel today? I think 100% probably, I don't know if I'd say more so, but with today, like, you know, we were talking about this earlier with like depression and anxiety sort of skyrocketing. I think now more than ever, people sort of find these period pieces like Jane Eyre that really focus on it. 
I think it gets far enough away that we relate to it, but it's still escapism. So I think 100% people would relate to it more. And I don't know, like for me as a reader and as a researcher, there are so many times when I've just sort of wanted Jane to like be happy. And it's, it's one of those <laughs> things that it just, it's a big struggle for her and not as much as in Villette, but um, I'm rambling. <laughs> no, so, so yeah, so, so the novel's really, um, I mean, we called it a, a, a building's roman, so yeah. it's a coming of age novel. Um, and we very much follow this character from her childhood yeah. into her adulthood. And you're right, I think we, we're really rooting for her as a character. Mm. Um, we just, her life's so horrible yeah, in the beginning. So <laughs> yeah, um, and we just, we really want to see where she goes. We want mm. this to sort of work for her. Mm. Um, Okay, so, so as, as modern readers, we still kind of want that, but I really like what you said about the fact that it's escapist because it's far enough in the past. I think that's what but it it's is. also close enough to be, you know, pretty relatable in that, in that you know, a lot of our um, modern psychologies really had their origins as a kind of a field yeah. of scientific discipline in the 19th century. Yes, 100%. I think looking, especially with my research, noticing how psychology wasn't even a concrete field. Everything was just thrown up into the air. So when when Jane and when with the character of St. John Rivers as well, like everyone's just sort of spouting what they think being mad is. And mm. it's just like you're oscillating between these different extremes. And I think that back then was what madness was. It was this idea of an extreme. And even though we're more specific now, I think nowadays we still think being in an extreme passionate sort of uh, I don't know headspace like I think that's yeah. how we see like people who aren't as um, I guess psychologically literate see mental health and dips and things like that so I think it still has a resonance today even though we've moved past this idea of what psychology is yeah yeah so there's still a lot of stigma around mental health and you know like you were saying very extreme manifestations of mental illness yeah. um so you know and i think maybe that's why we find the victorian period so interesting as well because you know the stigma around it indicates there's still a certain uncertainty still a sort of element of fear in some mm. cultures around this sort of thing and in the 19th century, as, as we know, a lot of our classic Gothic works involve at least one person being locked away in an asylum, yeah. that classic Gothic space. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in one of the, the major, most memorable characters in this story is actually someone who haunts it from the margins, mm -hmm. Bertha Mason. Um, so Rochester's wife that we don't actually know about until he is right on the cusp <laughs> of marrying <laughs> Jane Eyre um, and at the altar he gets exposed as already having a wife that he has locked away in the attic because she is mad. Mm. Um, is, so is this something that we find sort of scintillating, but uh, you know, your research looks into empathy. Mm. What do you think about that representation of mental illness? Well, like Bertha as a character, honestly, <laughs> like on her own, I don't think is treated very empathetically and that's tied to issues of race as well, which I don't really explore in my thesis, but um, my thesis essentially looks at Bertha as, and it's quite widely seen in scholarship, as an extension of Jane. Yes. And especially when Jane is always described as like plain Jane, very small, very little, very passive. Yeah. Even though she isn't, and we can talk about this with the 2006 version, but I really liked that. <laughs> it's like we still see that Jane is very passionate and she feels the need to subdue that all the time. And I think Bertha yeah. is there to, on the sides almost, um, act out those fears and desires that she wants, which is why she's so um, 
like sexually promiscuous, but also really violent. Like she's all yeah. these extreme manifestations of things that Jane would never really do. So, but maybe secretly wants to do. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so all of those kind of repressed desires, um, good and bad, I guess. You yeah. know, so all her repressed sexuality is a big thing that you know it's mm. it's very different to modern like contemporary novels. Um, where we're obviously a lot more free to express and, and experience um, sexuality, sexual desire mm. in the Victorian period, particularly at that early point, it wasn't as encouraged, particularly for women. Yeah. Um, and and then so so yeah, we've got someone like Bertha who who has no inhibitions at, yeah. <laughs> at all, um, and she's locked away. Her freedom is denied to her, mm. um, and you know, and yes, uh, there's, there's all sorts of descriptions of her as animalistic. Yeah. bestial in her kind of mannerisms and behaviors as well a vampire that whole a scene vampire. where she i think she drinks um her brother's blood yes happens yes her. yeah so i find that really interesting so there we've got um what is already emerging as a classic gothic stereotype which mm -hmm. is the vampire it has its origins in the kind of romantic period uh, its obvious origins are actually in the folklore, um, yeah. you know, Romania and places like that. But we've got um, it emerging as a literary phenomenon in the Romantic period, and it obviously becomes very famous with Dracula, which is at the very end of the 19th century. So I find it really interesting that she's drawing on this image here of the vampire yeah. to kind of really um, sell, I guess, mm. the the madness of this character, but also as a way to bring in that classic Gothic monster. Yeah, that's true, and also. Um because we don't see her, like she is a minor character for most of it. A big part of it is also like, I don't think it's as big of a thing as in Philip, but um, we don't actually know what Jane is like hearing and seeing for some parts of it. Yes. And the big scene where she tears her wedding veil and stuff like that, and she tells Rochester, he's like, oh, you know, you just saw a ghost. Maybe it was like this uh, yeah. illusion. And I think Bertha in a way plays on our own perceptions of what we think madness is in a way. Mm. So then... When she's revealed, it's just, um, I don't know, it's like, it's it's kind of horrific, even for readers. I think that's why it's interesting looking at her, like, do we empathize with her or against her in a way? Because we're so attached to Jane. Yes. And obviously she's the reason she can't get married to who she loves. So to, I guess bring it back to this idea of like, is it an empathetic representation? I would say ultimately no, especially when you look at the ending. Mm. Um, but then there's the whole... Um, um, wide Sagasso Sea, I think, which yeah. is the sequel. So yeah. I think people, again, the appeal of Jane Eyre is like wanting to know, well, should Bertha have more justice? Like, is it actually Rochester's fault that she's mad? Like, again, it's this idea of mental health and pathology that really attracts people to Jane Eyre because she's a really big part of scholarship as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so there's an example with the Wide Sagasso Sea of um, an adaptation that's gone, okay, this character has more to her. We don't actually see her backstory. We hear a little bit about it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think we are sort of positioned um, to empathize mostly, mostly with Jane Eyre. And yeah, this, this character is kind of an antagonist in a way, yeah. but she's a victim. She yeah. is a victim in this, in this circumstance. And it, yes, it's a very complex scenario, um, mm -hmm. but it's a, a big sticking point for many. And I think, you know, this was one of the, the points that sort of came up in reviews at the time, some some critical reviews when it was published and, you know, in the years since as the readership has grown, really love the novel and what it's doing. And others um, just maybe point out the, the parts that feel a little immoral, a little yeah. hard to grapple with. And, you know, the idea of having 
a wife, a mentally ill, <laughs> suffering woman that you have married and promised to, you know, take care of till death do us part, mm. and then you stick her in an attic and treat her like an animal because she's suffering a mental illness. Yeah. Um, and then you try to marry someone else without telling her about the situation. Yeah. <laughs> Fair I, enough to remember. So, so Rochester, on, on paper, Rochester's a pretty bad guy. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm... I'm sort of a Rochester defender because he even <laughs> says that he could have put her in Ferndine where him and Jane end up, but he thinks it's too dark and desolate for her and he has Grace Poole look after her. So I think in his own way, he does still care about her and wants her to be well, but I don't know, like people make mistakes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So maybe, maybe we need to appreciate that even Rochester, who locked his wife in an attic, can grow as a person. And <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, like he tried to save her when she uh, almost, or she did die, you know, he tried to save her. Yeah, so, so yeah, perhaps a redeeming moment in the end when he tries to save her from the fire and uh, damages his own body in the process, maybe yeah. getting maybe some just revenge there, experiencing disability yeah. himself. Well, exactly. And, you know, I, I, and this is another problematic aspect, obviously, framing disability as a revenge on someone um but but this is what happens in the end um he he gets horrifically burnt mm. and i think temporarily or mostly blinded yeah but there's a suggestion that that's maybe going to heal a bit well actually and i sort of talked about talk about this in my jane Eyre chapter but i sort of see ferndine as like a restorative place because yeah. it's not it's not that happily ever after and the fact that he's blind he does end up regaining his sight but i think it's meant to be this way where it's i sort of see it as a way for like him to regain some character development and i think learn because obviously he was obviously deceiving jane throughout the whole thing so there's a yeah. lot to learn from but i think jane does as well in terms of now like being in a relationship like she all her, her whole identity is based off independence so being in a relationship, like how does she regain that independence still? So I think they both have stuff to learn. I think Ferndine mm. is this space where they can explore that. At least that's how I see it. So I don't think it's like the end, they're happy, they get to live happily ever after, even though he yeah. did some problematic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, Ferndine, so the little cottage where they end up, it's in mm. the sort of the woodlands and it's removed. It's this little bubble away from everything, yeah. isn't it? Where they just get to be together. Um, and I guess heal and come back together. And so, so I guess Bronte's given, given them that, given you yeah. know this this sort of tortured, um, tumultuous couple, <laughs> a version of a happy ending that that doesn't completely erase the the struggles that they've gone through. Yeah. Uh, in fact, is a product of it. Mm. Um, okay, so that's that's really interesting. I think yeah, the, these kind of really um, still speak to us as readers. So let's talk a little bit about the novel as um, a piece of Victorian or, or 19th century literature, um, because, you know, uh, even even though we, you know, we still love it and we read it today and we can talk about how all the fun sort of interesting parts of the <laughs> plot, what else is it doing um, as a, a kind of product of the Victorian or the Victorian era? Well, from my research, I think I've learned that the Victorians were really one of the first I was going to say peoples, that sounds wrong. <laughs> they were one of the first people to um, really hone on this idea of psychological realism. That's specifically what like the Brontes do. But this like first person narrator who really like tells you like this is what's going to happen. Like sort of you feel like you're confined in them. Like I personally love um, Victorian children's literature because it has this like 
I'm going to take you on the story. I think it has that sort of narrative voice that is different to things prior. I could be wrong, but I think that sort of, when people think of Victorian literature, like even Charles Dickens, I think we think of that sort of um, eye, that kind of... Um, yeah, the strong presence of the narrator and, and in many ways, especially with, you know, you mentioned Dickens, there's this strong sense that the narrator is Dickens. Yeah. You know, yeah. So mm. that's why I think, you know, that we get this very... Um, strong sense of a persona behind it of the author of you know a Dickensian novel mm. um, okay so, so something similar is happening here in terms of a, a strong sort of sense of character I think so and I think they were trying to hone in more about this psychological space um, whether or not that was gothic or not I think that was just a really big thing for them in mm. terms of seeing literature as a potentially moralizing or empathetic way of um, readers coming together I think that was something they were definitely interested in because like to bring it to Dickens I always mention this but at Christmas Carol he was going to write an essay and then he decided to write a fiction piece because he thought that was going to speak more so I think as a I keep wanting to say as a people it sounds wrong <laughs> but they wanted to like George Eliot was a big proponent of it too they really had this empathetic streak in them um, yeah so I think that's in terms of my research like this 19th century perspective is really important because I think it's like the one of the first to really look into it yeah so yeah so a lot of discourse at the time around the power of, of narrative and literature mm. to um, be a form of moral instruction as well as to actually and, and and this is what you're saying not just moral instruction or intellectual education but um, yeah that empathetic element to actually incite emotion and yes. empathy in readers and to like really think for yourself like that's a, like a special Bronte is doing, but to really think like, oh, like I relate to that headspace as well. Like I've been in a dark place like that too. And that's why the Gothic is so powerful, which mm. is a different topic altogether. But the Victorian Gothic is so powerful because we're sort of asked to see these darkest elements of ourselves and not just be frightened of it, but to think, well, they are going through it. Like, so am I kind of thing. I don't know. It's mm. like this... Um, connection is built. I don't know, that sounds really hippie-ish. No. <laughs> um, okay, so so it's got a lot of um, a lot of qualities, I think, yeah, as, as we were just saying, as a sort of psychological exp exploration and invitation to empathy. Um, and at the time in the 19th century, it's really interesting then that we have a female protagonist mm -hmm. who is given so much space um, in terms of exploring her psychology, exploring mm -hmm. her emotions, exploring complex emotions as well, mm -hmm. um, giving her a lot of um, independence and autonomy within a really restricted context, obviously. Yeah. You know, this is something else I think we find fascinating about the 19th century is this sense that it's society is so repressive, so mm -hmm. controlled, so careful, so moralistic, um, so governed by manners and social etiquette. Mm. And of course, in many ways it is, but there's also um, an undercurrent to the 19th century and particularly the Victorian period as it goes on that a lot of people don't realize, which is this really wild, really fun yeah. side. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of really um, interesting stuff that we often uh, associate with more modern times mm. um, I think a lot of op open sort of sexuality a lot of different approaches mm. to things like that um, that a lot of people are surprised about and I think here we have sort of an early mm. early example of some of these things being brought into a narrative maybe not always easily maybe not yeah. always on the surface mm. um, but it's interesting I think that they're being explored like that well like we're meant to take her desire seriously like we're meant to take her sexual desire seriously as well which I yeah. think 
you would never have gotten before. Um, and I think that's why Jane is such an enduring and popular character because like, I think her, her desires for autonomy and independence are so general enough that modern audiences can want that, even though we don't have such a restrictive society anymore. But yeah. like as a female character, like she definitely is empowering. And I don't know, I just love that about, about the story as well. I think most people really love that too. Yeah. So yeah. So at the time, she's she's um, a governess, only a governess in relation yeah. to Rochester's wealth and social status, um, and you know, and to overcome that barrier, that there's the sort of central love story, um, you know, and and this has been used before. This is very <laughs> Pride and Prejudice, you know, um, and. So it's very interesting, I think, um, mm. exploring it from that angle. We've got a classic love story, but we're we're starting to do it very differently with yeah. with Jane Eyre. And a lot of people do sort of consider um, the Brontes novels, whether it's um, you know Wuthering Heights or yeah. it's Jane Eyre, versus Jane Austen's fiction, which is from yeah. slightly earlier in the century. You know, classics Pride and Prejudice, Emma, Mansfield Park, Sense and Sensibility. Mm. Um, so these these are kind of pitted often, I think, as as romances that are very different mm. in impulse. Um, you know, Jane Austen is is often, but not exclusively, light and very sort of um, high society. Yeah. Although she does have that wonderful Northanger Abbey where she goes yeah. full gothic. <laughs> she just indulges it. Yeah. And then the, the Brontes with their wild and dark, stormy, um, you know, northern. Yeah. settings um, and much more wild plot yeah. plot lines um, okay so so let's talk a little bit then about about the novel as um, a piece of women's writing mm. as as a woman author writing about women um, do you think that's important to you know it's, it's enduring status I think yeah 100% I think the Brontes in general like that's why partly why there's so many great elements to them but and again, like you shouldn't always read autobiographical things in novels, but with my research, I can see huge overlaps between like Charlotte's want for like a life of ambition, a life as a writer and being told that she shouldn't. And like with Jane, like wanting to have a life like that, that she designs as well. So I think there is that overlap there. And I think knowing the success of Charlotte Bronte and the Brontes generally, like at least for me as a modern reader, like it's quite cathartic knowing that it didn't, because you hear so many sad stories about women writers that are never heard and never known. So it is really nice to know that, you know, even though like her personal life is kind of sad and she did suffer from depression, like we know these things about her. In a way, it makes you root for her even more. And so I'm glad that she's successful, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot for, um, you know, there's a lot for women to overcome in the 19th century. A lot of um, restrictions placed on their um, social mobility, on their ability to earn money. Mm. But writing is something that um, had been for a while an avenue, one avenue for women to really have a voice, yeah. I think, in society. Um, and so so it's really interesting that, that all the Bronte sisters um, are working in this space, publishing around the same time. Mm. But they've also had really short, tragic lives. <laughs> Um, <laughs> died very young. Um, do you think this plays into it as well, the kind of mythology of the Brontes? Yeah, I think it does in a weird, um, like, morbid way. I think we sort of... I don't know if we enjoy it, but I think there's definitely this element of... It's that general, like, trope of the artist um, 
It's, a, it's like a Van Gogh gets lumped into there as well, like this tortured artist sort of thing. And yeah. I think at least Charlotte has that as well. And yeah, I think it is problematic as a status. I think we should try to move beyond that because there's just, they're real people at the end of the day. But I think it is also that, because, you know, like comparing it to Jane Austen, their lives were really tragic and their fiction is quite gothic and dark as well. So I think it helps to lend that to it. But at the same time, I forgot to mention this before, but um, in, in terms of her women's writing, she really critiques how psychological reform was done with like moral management and trying to repress your emotions. So like her voice is really there. And I think as a woman, that's a really big part of why we, maybe not like on a conscious level, but I think it's partly why we really love when Jane speaks out as well because in a way we probably think oh maybe this is Charlotte as well speaking yeah interesting can you tell us a little bit more about that idea of moral management what is it and why why do they have this idea Um, well essentially moral management was the 19th century way of trying to stop or prevent madness before it actually happens and they thought madness was an excess of emotion so in order to not get that you had to suppress any emotions you had so it could be positive or negative emotions but whatever it was you had to sort of keep it inside and they really had this idea of like watching other people reading other people obviously with phrenology and stuff like that and physiology Mm. (laughs) so I think um, that was a really toxic part of the era because it just led people to bottle everything in and like you said there's this other side to the Victorian era and I think it's probably because you know when you press something so much it's going to eventually like pop so yeah. i think they had this sort of flipped coin of like trying to oppress everything but at the same time having very wild desires and like yeah. lives of debauchery at the same time and i think <laughs> they really struggled with that so in a way i'm glad we've moved past it and have a bit more of like a holistic understanding of wants and psychology and things like that yeah interesting yeah i i think that's really interesting and so I guess at this early, relatively early stage, it's about mid-century, 1847 when it's published. Um, yeah, we've got this very clear split between mm-hmm. the rational side of things, the sort of daylight world where Jane exists and she's trying to experience and understand her emotions but also keep them in check, keep them mm-hmm. very controlled. Yeah. And then the the flip side of that, like you were saying, the kind of flipped coin of the, the nighttime world in which the mad Bertha Mason yeah. somehow escapes her bounds and roams about the house and sets <laughs> fire to things and tears people's wedding veils into. Yeah. <laughs> but she's seen as like an unattractive, um, like monstrous woman. So yeah. you're meant to sort of be like Jane in the sense, like there's a really good quote where it's just as like, like, look at this plain girl looking at the gambles of hell and stuff like that and it's like well but Jane shouldn't be heralded as like I think a lot of people talk about this in scholarship like it shouldn't be one idea of femininity versus the other right I don't think that's what she was trying to say I think you could look at it like that but I think by the end of the novel I hate when people think oh like Jane forfeited her independence by going back to Rochester like she went on her own terms and she is someone that really wants to be loved and to love. So I think in her own way, that is her passionate side coming out. And I think yeah. it's really important. And yeah, I don't think that, I think nowadays we're in this like femininity as bad kind of angle, but I think her ending up with her love interest is still a very independent and it, it's true to her character, I guess. Yeah, so so this is interesting, isn't it? When especially when some authors don't have many novels, mm-hmm. um, 
and you know, Charlotte Bronte actually continued to publish, published a couple more, a few more, um, but Jane Eyre I think is by far the most well-known. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we can sometimes sort of take their characters as a proxy, as we were saying, for the author, as if yeah. they're kind of representing everything the author thought and wants people to be like, as opposed to taking this opportunity to explore one person's psychology, one person, one character's mm you know, complexities, good and bad, um, whatever that means, you know, if there even is such a description. Um, so, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's more complex than that. And I, um, I find that really interesting. So the ending, as you mentioned, has been quite divisive. Uh, it's divided people in terms of, you know, Jane uh, finds her independence, she runs away, but she's largely running away from where she wants to be. She wants to be with Rochester. She's at the altar, finds out that he's trying, he's got someone he's locked away in an attic. He's trying to marry her anyway. I imagine that kind of brought him down a a couple of pegs, at least in her estimation. (laughs) I would hope hope so. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so she runs away from that situation, but it's not, she's not running away from Rochester necessarily. In fact, she still loves him. It's very much and this is the point, I think, where she's the most repressed because mm. she loves him but can't be with him. And yes. so her running away is an attempt to deny her feelings. Yes. But it's also such a great moment of independence because she could have so easily, again, it's this extreme, she could have so easily have just stayed with him, given into, I guess, the love and passion she feels for him. But at the same time, she remembered her values. And I think that's what's so enduring like, I just love that scene so much. So how that's executing adaptations is really important. But um, yeah, so important that we remember, like, she she stood by. Like, that's a really, like, hard moment. And for me, I think that's the, what's it called? The climax of the novel, almost. Yeah. Because she's standing up for herself, even when she could have just as easily. Like he said, you don't have any family. No one would really know that they're doing something, like, illegal. Yes. But um, it's really... <laughs> Who's to know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But she's like, oh. I would know. And it's so great. Yeah, so so here we have, again, this great example of her, um, one of her defining characteristics, a staunch sense of morality. Yeah. Um, she stands by this from from a child. She's told that she's a devil, that she's going to hell. And, and her, her sassy response of the, the way to avoid going to hell yeah. is just to be healthy and not die. Yeah. <laughs> Um, she, you know, she's so intellectually independent in that yeah. sense, I think. And one of her, her main senses of independence is that she's unshakable in her morals, mm-hmm. her personal sense of morality as well, yeah. because she doesn't seem to judge Rochester too harshly for not mm-hmm. having shared that same moral, <laughs> moral compass. Mm-hmm. Um, and is quite happy to come back to him because she, she can't deny her feelings for him. Yeah. So in the end, she comes back to him when the situation has changed yeah and it's on her terms and i think even when he's spewing about like bertha being like this awful like woe is me kind of speech and she's like (laughs) well you talk about her so cruelly like remember she's mad so again it goes to show that jane really does have this sense of morality even though she should hate bertha like you know she just ruined this marriage (laughs) that she had but she's still like thinking like well you know, you locked her up and she's mad. Like, why do you speak of her like this? So I think... So she's possibly... She's placing blame where the where we should be placing blame, which is on Rochester's head, yeah, really. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. I don't think she... I think she says, like, I love you, but, like, you're wrong and I need to go kind of thing, which I think I is love you, but wrong. I don't have to like you right yeah. now. <laughs> and she leaves. So 
again, that's, I think that's a really good part of her character. So the fact that she comes back to him, I don't think it's a big thing because like you said, as a child, she was orphaned, she was mistreated terribly. Like she deserves to be loved. And yeah. I think we need to give Rochester a second chance. Like I don't like in any way think he, what he did was right, but he was duped. Like he did not true. know what he was getting into. That's also true. So yeah, it's a lot more complex than, yeah. you know, the sort of bare bones uh, summary, I guess, of the plot suggests. Mm. Um, and the other important thing is obviously she, when she goes away, so she runs away from Thornfield, she discovers actually she does have long lost family. Yeah. She's, she becomes an heiress. So she discovers everything <laughs> she's ever wanted. She discovers wealth, independence, and family. And the Bronte. Yes, in, in a magic sort of fairy tale. Oh, by the way, <laughs> it's like it's, yeah, it's like winning the lottery. Um, so, so I think that's really interesting, and there's a suggestion of maybe divine intervention there. She's yeah. she's stuck by her morals. She did the right thing, and here's the reward. Yeah. But again, this is kind of playing in maybe to the fact that she's got everything she needs to be independent now. She doesn't need a husband. Mm. Doesn't need Rochester, and yet she still goes back to him. Well, exactly. Ugh. I just love her so much. Like, just thinking about it, when Sinjin tells her, like, you've got, I don't even know how many pounds it was, but, like, rich. She's rich now. And she's just like, oh, whatever. And she's like, <laughs> he's like, but, you know, we're cousins. And she's like, oh, I'll split the money. Yeah. So, like, it's just so wholesome. I'm just like, give this girl some family. Like, she just needs some happiness. And she doesn't care that she's wealthy now because, because she just doesn't, doesn't care matter. about that. Yeah. She yeah. just wants... She wants to be loved. Yeah, exactly. yeah, and belong somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So the girl needs a break. She does. Yeah. Give that girl a break. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. So so this is um, a really interesting story. A lot going on in the plot. I think we could talk about that all day. But let's talk a bit about the fact that we have never let this story go. 175 mm -hmm. years later, we are still seeing new adaptations of this story. It's not enough for us just to read the novel. Mm -hmm. We have. Every few years, there seems to be a new TV series, a new film adaptation, and there are some classic film adaptations, obviously, going mm. you know decades back. Um, but some of our recent ones um, are the 2011 movie mm -hmm. with um, Mia Wasikowska and Michael Fassbender, two sort of famously beautiful people <laughs> playing two uh, supposedly plain. Yeah. Or dare I say, in Rochester's case, ugly mm -hmm. characters. I mean, the novel makes a big deal about how ugly this character is supposed to be. <laughs> and yet he seems to always be played by beautiful people. Yeah. What do we think is going on here? <laughs> is this an indication of the, of the modern romancing of the story? The fact that mm -hmm. we're playing up the love angle? Yeah, 100%. Uh, like Along with that, we always downplay the beginning and end of the novel where Rochester's not in it. Yeah, so right. <laughs> I think we definitely it's the Hollywood makeover like we always have to make people more attractive yeah um I definitely wish they cast people that are at least for average looking just because it's more <laughs> in keeping with them because as we said earlier like it's a little bit more understandable why you'd fall in love with him because Rochester's is also just his personality is quite rash he can be really rude so mm. you think like there's not honestly not a lot going on for this guy, but if you <laughs> kind of make him more attractive, you're like, okay, well, maybe I can see why she's okay. going for it. So I mean, yeah, so he's rude, but he's Michael Fassbender. So, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, he, locked his, he locked his wife in an attic, but he's pretty. So yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll give him a free pass. It's that like typical <laughs> Byronic hero thing. Like It doesn't yes. bother me hugely. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to say how I don't like looking at them. But at the same time, like they should really... I'd like in the next one... Because even, um, I can't say her name like you have. But, Mia um, Vasikovska. 
Yeah, yes. like she's pretty. Like I think they just really this plain element. They just sort of put her hair back and yeah. have really minimal makeup. Mm. But I think we just have a hard time having like average-looking people, dare say, ugly people um, <laughs> on screen, which is a shame because I think there's it is a shame because it's a big defining part of the. You know, Jane is meant to be someone constantly overlooked yeah. because of her smallness, her plainness. You know, she blends into the background in, in many ways. And that's why Rochester... I think that, again, that's part of the magic of the novel is the fact that Rochester sees yeah, her. Exactly. He really sees her. He, mm. he brings out a fire in her as well. And, I mean, fire is a concept. Let's talk about yes. <laughs> We didn't mention fire. Fire is a recurring symbol, I think, in this yeah. novel. And this is something the adaptations I've noticed make a big deal of too. Yes. The symbol of fire as passion mm. but also something incredibly dangerous yeah it's warming so you know when when jane comes in out of off the moors she arrives at thornfield she's had a horribly bleak cold <laughs> shivering life up until this point mm. and the first thing she does in thornfield is walk into this warm homely yeah. firelit glowing room that embraces mm. her almost like a warm hug mm. and she feels at home I didn't notice that, yeah. That's, there's a big moment. She's at home. And, mm. and so there's a nice embracing fire. Mm. There's the fire of the passion that she feels with Rochester. Mm. But there's, there's what happens with fire if it gets too out of control. It burns you. Yeah, <laughs> it consumes exactly. you. It burns things down. And this is what happens with Bertha. She's constantly setting, <laughs> setting stuff alight. <laughs> and the whole place burns down in the end. And Rochester gets burnt. Yeah. And, you know, so there's this... I really like that. I think that's one of my favorite things is this, mm. is this symbolism, the way that fire works through it. And I've just noticed it in the adaptations, the way yeah. they contrast shadowy dark scenes with mm. this warm orange glow of the firelight. I, it doesn't come through in the adaptations as much, but uh, Sinjin mm. is the coal, is the ice. So right. I can't speak about my whole thesis right now, <laughs> but the <laughs> idea of like opposite end of Bertha which is fire and passion is this ice icy ice cold yeah yeah so and not in a cool like no. <laughs> ice ice baby kind of way <laughs> no I'm terribly repressed kind of way <laughs> I need to see the reference. yeah yeah okay so yes so Sinjin Rivers representing when she runs away and she finds her family this sort of half cousin of hers this distant relative mm -hmm. but he asks her to marry him so this is a potential option she has to go overseas. And the reason she doesn't, of course, is because it's loveless. It's a passionless arrangement. Yeah. She says, why can't we just go over there as equals and just like not do the marriage thing? Yeah. And he's like, no, I need a wife. I need a servant, basically. Yeah. Um, and so, okay, so yeah, so we've got this really interesting um, characterization um, between yeah, the fiery passion and the cold, rational, yeah. clinical arrangement approach mm. to marriage. Okay, that's interesting. So, okay, so we've got the 2011 film, um, and another another one that's uh, relatively recent is a 2006 BBC miniseries, and this one stars Ruth Wilson and Toby Stevens. And I've got to I confess, I love a BBC miniseries. <laughs> They're usually my I usually I think usually for me I prefer them to films. You've just got more yeah, space. They exactly. tend to go into a lot of detail. What do you think though? Do you have a favourite adaptation? Well, I've only seen this in the 2011 one, and again, I think it's an unfair, unfair comparison because it's got like double the runtime, so yeah. it, can, <laughs> it can go into way more detail. So I think I do prefer the 2006 one, but there's just something about like BBC adaptations that are very like cozy and comforting, which yeah. I don't know if Jane Eyre should really have that because it's a <laughs> gothic novel, but it is still like, I put it on, I was like, oh. 
It is, yeah. It's quite nice. It is nice to watch. Okay, so the gothic element is really interesting because I think this is something that is, is quite famous about the novel. It's, it's that, um, you know, it's famously set in North Yorkshire um, or the Yorkshire Dale, sorry, like that kind of um, northern English environment with the very harsh winters, the open moors, mm-hmm. and we have scenes of that throughout the novel. Um, and the adaptations love to make use of this really evocative scenery. Mm. Um, I think most people would associate the Brontes, at least, with these windswept moors. And obviously the yeah. Wuthering Heights plays into that as well. Mm. Um, so, okay, so we've got this this really interesting Gothic connection in this novel. And I think various adaptations either uh, lean into these Gothic elements mm. or pull them back. Yeah. What do you think about the way that, um, you know, the miniseries or this recent film, uh, it's not even that recent anymore, relatively no, no. recent. <laughs> um, yeah. What do you think about the way they treat the Gothic side of things? I think they do it pretty well. I, if I'm honest, I do prefer the way the 2011 one, in terms of the dreary, spooky aesthetic, I think that was yeah. a little bit more on point. I feel like the 2006 one was a bit more realist. Yeah. But at the same time, as you mentioned, the red room was done really, really well because yes. they literally had the red filter. <laughs> yeah. The, so, so we yeah. spoke about this just um, before we before we started the podcast. We were mentioning, um, and one thing that that I liked about the miniseries was the way they did the red room scene, which for me is one of the most important scenes yeah. in the novel. And as you were saying before. Um, because we put so much emphasis on the romance that happens later, we tend that adaptations often skip really quickly through the childhood years, which mm-hmm. actually take up a chunk of the novel. At 15 minutes, they go to yes. the Thornfield. I noticed that. I wrote down the number two. I was like, this is, this is Very really quick. quick. For a um, miniseries, too, that has more time. It, yes. Yeah. Um, but one thing I think they did well is the red room scene. So the classic yeah. Jane is a child. This is one of the opening scenes, one of the very earliest scenes in the novel. She's beaten by this, um, her, her cousin, um, who is a horrible little brat of a boy and and so she flies back at him and defends herself but obviously gets the blame and so she gets locked away in this creepy room where her uncle had died and she's afraid of the ghost of Uncle Reed coming back mm. into the room to get her um, and it's a very gothic scene it's called the red room everything all the furniture all the sort of furnishings all the red is all red um, and it's a creepy scene and she kind of loses consciousness and, and has a sort of fever experience yeah and a lot of adaptations skip over this, but the miniseries, actually, they had that red filter over everything. It looked really creepy mm. and scary. And they they actually have a, a representation of the ghost there. Yeah, it's cool. this creepy, ghoul, mm. almost zombie-looking thing who sits up in bed mm. and she screams at everything. It's really scary. And I loved that. <laughs> I loved it too, because, like, I think it puts in your head, like, was she seeing that or was it actually a ghost? I think with these yes. sort of Victorian Gothic genres like you never actually know if it's in their head or not which i love yes um whereas in the 2011 one i think they just like we just see her screaming so yeah and she runs into the back of the door and knocks herself out cold which is actually she kind of gets off a little bit lightly there compared to the novel yeah exactly (laughs) it's more of like a psychological like oh my god am i hallucinating i don't know i just saw my dead uncle like it's definitely more yeah frightening in this version so i did prefer yeah and i think Mm -hmm. that you know in the novel and the adaptations really sets us up for why Bertha, the, she doesn't know about Bertha, the idea of this ghost, of yeah. Grace Poole perhaps, you know, the, yeah. the nurse haunting the house and trying to get into her room at yeah. night. Um, you know, there are all these sort of scary scenes that lead up to the revelation of Bertha being locked in the attic. But until that point, as you mentioned, we kind of, it's a bit ghostly. It's this very classic gothic, mm. scary, uncertain thing stalking in the mm. darkness. 
Um, okay, so the adapt I think the adaptations do that side pretty well. I think so too. I'm trying to look at my notes. <laughs> um, oh, well, the psychological ac um, aspect. This is less like gothic, but I guess the Victorian aspect of it um, was a really big thing in the 2006 one because yeah. they made an original character, like a doctor character, which you could argue was a little bit too on the nose, but I didn't mind because I think you do need to have this sort of discourse on what if we let our emotions take over us? And that's essentially what that character was talking about. And Jane gets really emotional when people ask her. And again, like the, the Thornfield guests were sort of trying to like jeer her on and poke fun at her, I think, as like her status as a governess. Yeah. But I love that she got emotional about it. And especially seeing how she was as a child, she was like, like, no, every child, regardless of good or bad blood, deserves to be loved. And I was like, yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so she, she has her say, and she's yeah. okay. So, um, all right. I think we could talk about this forever. You know, there's so much going on. Both of those adaptations are very different. Both quite beautiful people involved. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and so it makes it when they when they talk about, can you bear to look at my face? You know, <laughs> you know. Well, yes, we can. We can bear this. Um, so maybe one day in the future maybe that's what we're working towards an yeah. honest adaptation an honest characterization ugly jane yes yeah. <laughs> we, we long for the day of ugly jane making it onto film um okay so i, I think um uh, i'd just like to say thank you to you again for joining us on this podcast and talking about your research um i can't wait to see the finished product and i'm very excited to see what you do next so thank you for coming along thank you for having me Okay, I hope you've enjoyed our episode for the 175th anniversary of Jane Eyre. This has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. Don't forget to subscribe and share, and we will see you again soon.